This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Today's podcast is going to be a drop in the bucket as far as the kind of information I could share about the topic. And if you've seen the name of the podcast, you know we are talking about Maine. Maine is a remarkable state in so many ways. I've been in some very, very out there places of West Virginia and uh, the Carolinas, but Maine is by far the wildest state east of the Mississippi. It, If you look at a map of Maine, first and foremost, You'll notice that for a very large chunk of it, kind of the middle to top portion, there are no major highways. In fact, there's no secondary highways. To get to so many places in Maine to enjoy its amazing outdoor opportunities, you're going to be taking fire roads, if that. You might be taking a float plane or a canoe to get to some of these wild places. And as you have probably assumed, those wild places contain wild fish. And so that's why we are talking about the great state of Maine today on the Casting Cross Fly Fishing Podcast. Maine is incredibly close to me, uh, both, well, I, I guess physically more than anything. Uh, I live in Massachusetts, north of Boston, and I can be at the Maine border in less than 45 minutes if I abide by all posted speed limits. I can get to Kittery, Maine, and I can be into some really good fishing in about 45 minutes in Maine. But that being said, it would take me nearly eight hours to get to the other side of Maine, which means I could get to places like New York City, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and even maybe Washington, D.C. in the same amount of time that it would take me to get to the farthest reaches of Maine. And as you drive up, say, 95 the, uh, through the East Coast and up into Maine, you're going to encounter a remarkable amount of fishing opportunities. And it's that diversity of fisheries that makes Maine pretty special. 
So there's three major kind of things that you can fish for in Maine, and this is this is by no means some sort of scientific classification. But first, there's the saltwater, and the striper fishing is fantastic. Uh, if you're talking about going up 95 and saying, I want to catch a fish as fast as possible as soon as I get across the border into Maine, uh, you're going to be able to catch fish in Kittery uh, just across the river from uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I've caught stripers there, and they are there in in plenty. It's not the same kind of striper fishery as you're going to encounter in, say, the Chesapeake or in uh, New York, but there's still lots and lots of fish and fish of great size every year. And that's going to continue all the way up the coast. And of course, there's other fish that you encounter as well. Not as many fish as you're going to see even in Massachusetts and Point South, but there's a, a great diversity of fishing opportunities that you get uh, depending on where you are on the main coast. And then as you work inland and up towards the Canadian border, you're going to find smallmouth. You're going to find other fish like largemouth bass, panfish, and pike, and even muskie. Those are going to be plentiful, again, inland and northward. But when you think of Maine, whether it be because you've looked at an L.L. Bean catalog, Bean being based out of Freeport, Maine, uh, or because you have some kitschy artwork in your cabin, or you just have been around fly fishing literature or outdoors uh, magazines for any period of time, then you're probably thinking of one of two species, landlocked salmon and brook trout. And this is the place to catch those fish. So let me talk about brook trout for a second, because I have a lot more experience with brook trout than I do with landlocked salmon. Landlocked salmon are awesome. Uh, they'll do anything a trout does. Uh, they're just a little bit different. Um, but let's talk about brook trout. I've caught brook trout as far south as South Carolina. And I have to say that brook trout are probably my favorite fish out there. Uh, I have caught very, very large brook trout in the Catskill region of New York. I've caught big Spring Creek brookies. I've caught brook trout in the Carolinas again, as well as in Maryland, Virginia, uh, up in the highest reaches of some of the Appalachians. But the brook trout in Maine are something special. There's a couple places where you can get into truly large wild brook trout. And because of the remoteness of Maine, the remote nature of Maine, you're going to get to fish for fish that have not been abused to the same extent as most other fish on the East Coast. So what that means is these fish and their strains, so you have the genetic purity as well as their population. So you're talking about how many fish and the carrying capacity of a river being uh, its potential being realized is going to be greater uh, and, and have a higher quality than other places in the East Coast. Now, most of Maine has been uh, has been logged, for example. Um, there's, there's been some sort of uh, industrial use of, of really everything east of the Mississippi. And we're actually at a point now we probably could say most, most of the country. But th because there has been there's more water and there's more woods, the impact was not as significant in a lot of places in the same way that you would find in, say, western Pennsylvania or even the eastern part of West Virginia, you're going to find places that they still show the signs of logging. And, and dams are a great reason to, to say, yes, I, I see what happened here uh, even 7,500 years, 200 years ago. 
But in a lot of places, the fish have really kind of taken it back and have taken over. And it's one of those interesting things where although the dams are coming down, the dams are a really important part of the Maine fishing heritage. Um, some of that has to do with the fact that Maine, uh, like uh, upstate New York, for example, the fishing culture of that area really came about the same time as industrialization was becoming what it what it was in the 19th century. And so consequently, like in upstate New York, you had people who lived in New York who were investing money in buying property and and patronizing guides and outfitters up in the Catskills and further upstate New York. In Maine, you're having the same people and also people from Boston and other areas that were coming up and establishing uh, hunting camps, fishing camps, lodges, things like that. And so the reason they were able to do that was because of the money they were making from industry. And so it was kind of this uh, give and take where we have some in some places lodges that still stand some very old historic lodges and other places kind of protected fishing cultures where early on even though the 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 landscape was being damaged at the same time certain aspects of the landscape were being protected because of the the outdoor experience that was was being appreciated by the very same people who had an investment in the industry the logging the utilization of the rivers up in Maine so when I talk about Maine, and I talk about Maine fisheries, what am I talking about? Now, there are countless river systems and lakes and lake systems that can be mentioned. Some of the more popular ones um, in southern Maine are Sebago Lake and the surrounding area. As you move up, there's the Kennebec River. As you move inland, there's the Megalloway and the Rapid, which I'm going to come back to here in a minute. Um, the Androscoggin, the Rangeley Lake region. Um, Moosehead Lake, Baxter State Park, and then you go up on the coast and you have Acadia and the options that are there. And then up in northern Maine, uh, Grand Lake Stream, the Allagash, the St. John, there's countless rivers. And every one of those names you may be familiar with because of fly fishing culture or, like I mentioned before, uh, you know, an L.L. Bean catalog, whether it be a parka, a pullover, or a duffel bag, it might bear the name of one of those rivers or uh, lakes that I've mentioned. But one of the things that I think is so important for me to communicate is how out there a lot of these rivers are. Uh, the first time I had a long fishing trip in Maine, I went fishing on the Rapid River and we stayed at the camps there. And to get there, it was probably about three hours from Portland, which is about two hours from Boston. And then it was a half an hour boat ride to get to the lodge. And then you are staying right on the Rapid River. And the Rapid River is a spectacular fishery. Uh, it is known to be one of the places where you are best chances of catching a large native brook trout. And I caught large native brook trout. Um, I was fishing during the sucker spawn, and so uh, the suckers were running, and they were spawning, and the brook trout were stacking up behind them. The landlocked salmon didn't seem to want any part of that, so they were just in the heads of pools, rising to dry flies, and just fishing in riffles, fishing in pools, fishing in the pond, in the stream, all of those things. It was just an amazing experience, and there's only like X many people that are there. This is one of the most popular times to fish. I think this was in June, if I if I recall. One of the most popular times to fish, 
but there's not a whole lot of people there because there's only so many people that can get there. There's only so many people that can stay there. And once you get up there, there's only so many places that you can go unless you have a boat. But of course, getting a boat there takes a little bit of work. So it's not like one of the big rivers out west. It's not even like one of the big rivers in the mid-Atlantic, New York or Pennsylvania or Virginia, where as many people as can park or drop a boat in are going to be fishing. It's much more remote than that, and it's much more wild than that. So my suggestion, whether it be Grand Lake Stream, far north, where you're going to get into uh, river brook trout, river landlocked salmon, uh, pond brook trout, you're going to have smallmouth, you're going to have toothy fish, uh, or the rapid, like I mentioned, or any of those other the fisheries that I alluded to earlier as I just rattled off a, a list of some of the greatest hits, is to go to a lodge and get a guide. I am all about DIY fishing. And I, as I've, I've gone through all these other Why You Should Fish podcasts over the past few years of casting across, I am a huge advocate of DIY fly fishing trips. In my personal opinion, Maine is the place where you want to go and stay at a lodge and get a guide. And part of that is because it is so wild and remote that you're going to, it's going to be a lot of work to get up there in the first place. Secondly, uh, there's a important cultural aspect of staying in one of these old fishing lodges. If you go to a fly fishing show and you run into some of the most popular main lodges, they they pride themselves on their heritage. They pride themselves on their history. They pride themselves on who's fished there, whether it be um, angling dignitaries or um, political dignitaries, and how this has just been a part of, of Maine and Maine fly fishing for the last 100, 150, 200 years. So that's an important thing that you you can't overlook. To sit on the porch of, of one of these little cabins or on the main building of the lodge and pick up a book and flip through it and read about what happened from the locals or from, again, an, an angling dignitary from sometime in the last century it's something that you can't you, you can't replicate the old mounted fish which you know it certainly aren't in vogue anymore but to to see those there and to hear the story about it to talk to the guy who's been fishing there his whole life whether he's 18 or 88 there's something special about it but then getting a guide because the last thing you want is to go through all that effort get all the way out there all the way up there and uh, then run into a situation where you have no clue what you're doing uh, I've had that experience up there where I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this myself, and then I'll get a guide on day two. Well, guide, guys, day one was a disaster. No clue what I was doing, looking for fish, falling in the water, not knowing what was going on because it's just so big and so wild. Day two, catch lots of fish with a guide. Day three, the DIY part becomes a lot easier. So that would be my suggestion, to get a guide stay at a lodge, and, and really live it up, at least that first time. And you can come back again, and you, you are able to kind of have a grasp of what to do. But more often than not, lodges get repeat visitors because you appreciate how much effort it takes to get up there. And then once you're up there, you're, you really want to have that hot meal. You want to have that sack lunch. You want to know that you're right on the river and you have latest, greatest information about what's going on. Because once you get to a certain place, cell service is going to drop off. You can't say that about that many places, uh, especially on the East Coast anymore. But up in a lot of parts of Maine, that's still the case. So how do you get there? I know I'm not giving like perfect fishing information. I'll come back to that with gear here in a second. Actually, tell you what, we'll start with gear. I like fishing with a five or a six weight almost exclusively and almost all of the trout and landlocked 
salmon fisheries in Maine. Uh, a stiffer, heavier five weight and a good strong six weight because you want the ability to throw long casts and you want the ability to switch it up from a delicate dry fly presentation all the way up to a heavy nymph or heavy streamer rig on the fly. So a maybe a five weight that can be a great dry fly rod and a six weight that can be a versatile streamer or nymph rig rod. To have both of those and have them both rigged up as you walk and wade is a great way to approach this water because there are going to be big, deep, gnarly pools. And some of those are going to be immediately downstream of a giant dam. And that's where the fish are going to be stacked up. And to get down to those those fish, you might even be better served with something like a seven weight, but a six weight will do under most situations and circumstances. So nine foot five weight, nine foot six weight, um, there are other rods you can fish. If you're on smaller waters, if you're fishing the still waters, a lot of these ponds, I still say go with a five weight. Uh, if you're in a canoe or if you're in a float tube to have that nine foot long rod is going to give you the advantage of making those casts when you are already submerged and to have that five weight, you're going to be able to have the power to pick up that, that line and put it where you want to put it. Could you fish with a, st a stiffer four weight? Absolutely. But again, I feel like that nine foot five weight is an incredibly versatile rod that you'd be able to fish on some of the larger brook trout and landlocked salmon rivers, as well as some of the ponds that you're going to be on. Now there's tiny little creeks and tributaries and things like that, that you'll want to fish that three weight, that seven and a half foot rod. And that's all fine and good. But generally speaking, that's not why you're going up there. If you're up there for a long time, you know, throw one in the back of the car. If you live there, then you're definitely going to be fishing it. But for a lot of these larger rivers, you're going to have space to cast, not, you know, tight little canopies. You're going to have open water where you're waiting and you're able to make those casts, whether it be you're standing in the water or you're in a boat. And so nine foot five weight, nine foot six weight, something you're able to bomb out long casts. And that six weight, I'd like to like to also suggest having a sinking line, nothing that's going to get down super deep, super fast, but something that's going to assist you in getting those streamers down quickly. Because if you do have fast water, um, if you are fishing kind of the mouths of where these uh, these rivers empty into into ponds in the river, so um, below a, a dam or even just a really big, wide, deep depression that can go on for acres and acres, it's helpful to get those streamers down a little bit deeper. Um, that That's the most important thing, especially when you're fishing some of those traditional streamers um, like the... Uh, gray ghost or mickey fin things like that that don't have a ton of weight on them you fish those with a little bit of a sinking line or even a sink tip uh, you're able to get them down in front of the fish so that's kind of my my two cents on, on rods and lines as far as waders go studded boots studded boots studded boots these are big rocky bouldery rivers new england is either swamp or rock that's a little bit of an overgeneralization but really, when it comes down to it, New England is mostly swamp and mostly rock. So big studs on those wading boots is going to be huge. As far as fly assortments, my goodness, there is too many to talk about. But I think that if you are wanting to fish dry flies, you're going to be able to fish dry flies. Just pay attention to the hatches. Almost all the major hatches are going to occur between late May, and they're going to go all the way through September, but mostly into early September. All the major hatches, mayflies, caddisflies, stoneflies. Uh, lots more information for that, depending on where you're fishing, by your local fly shop. Uh, another important piece of gear that you're going to want to have is bug spray. The bugs are out of control May through really early September. Lots of bug spray, but don't use DEET because it'll melt all your stuff. Anyway, I mentioned earlier, how do you get there? 
a lot of people fly to Portland, which is fine and good if you get a good flight. But don't be afraid to fly to Logan in Boston. Uh, if you save a couple hundred bucks, your flight is going to probably be a little bit quicker and easier because it's going to be a bigger airplane. And you only have about an hour and a half drive to compensate for what you would have, have gotten if you would have flown to Portland, uh, Maine. But there's two other airports that are worth exploring, Manchester, New Hampshire, and Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Uh, Portsmouth gets some crazy deals for a couple of really random airports uh, across the, the country, especially kind of in the Midwest and East Coast. The same thing for Manchester. So check those out. Don't feel like you're locked into flying into a really tiny airport in Maine. Uh, if you're going to have to get a car, then you might as well get your best deal and probably go to an airport that has a larger selection of rental cars. So I've always told people that when they've come out to fish there, that if you can get a great flight into Portland, go for it. But uh, check, check out Portsmouth, check out Manchester, check out Logan, and uh, you might it might all kind of equal out, especially if uh, you are limited in the times you can fly into one of those smaller airports and you can fly to Logan instead. So where do you get more information? There is so many options out there. There are so many options out there, um, but I'm going to give two very, very quick ones. One is Fly Fisher's Guide to New England uh, by Lou Zambello. It is a big, thick uh, book from Wilderness Adventure Press, one of their fly fishing guidebooks. Uh, the most recent one was put out in 2016. So it is eight years old, but it is great because it gives maps and it gives some very general information, including links and uh, directions to local fly shops. So if you are intrigued, if you want up-to-date information, you get the information from this one, and then that is your jumping off point to go to a local fly shop. If you want one fly shop, that can give you great information. All Points Fly Shop. I think they're a South Portland address, um, but you go to All Points Fly and they have all sorts of resources. The owner's a good guy. He can point you in the right direction, even if it's to go someplace much, much further than uh, than southern southeastern Maine uh, kind of services directly. Go fly fish in Maine. Uh, if you have some time this summer, make it up here. There is so many good things to find, do, and explore. The hiking is phenomenal. The wildlife is interesting. The food is just spectacular. If you don't like lobster, the, the food scene is still really, really good. So I've given very few particulars. Rod Waite, go fish the Rapid River, call all points fly fishing. But mostly I've given very, very general information. So please take that. Use it and this podcast in general as a launching point to go off into another direction to find where you might want to go fly fishing in Maine. The Grand Lake Stream area. Man, I could just talk for a long time just about that. It's just incredible the angling opportunities that are there. Acadia National Park, the the scenery, and to, to couple that with fly fishing, uh, it's just it's just awesome. So check it out. I'll put uh, a link to All Points Fly Fishing in this podcast page, and I'll put a link to Fly Fisher's Guide to New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts in this podcast's page on the show notes at castingacross.com. This week on castingacross.com, a couple of articles. The first one that came out actually got a lot of traction. It's called Enough for Fishing, Enough for Fishing. And it is about using an old fly rod and how that's good. It might not be great. And it might not be enough for you, 
but really it is enough for fishing. So this was another one of those articles that I kind of retooled and made some alterations of from this, I think it was 2016. So this is six years of uh, reading this every once in a while and just making a few changes. So as I mentioned with those, it's cool for me to see how my writing has changed and how I would write something uh, now versus how I would write it earlier. So enough for fishing. Uh, it's definitely a, a good read. And then Wednesday's article is called Trout and Fire on the Tundra, Part 1. Trout and Fire on the Tundra, Part 1. This is a story. It's a story about uh, New Year's Eve hijinks and just the beginning of, uh, of one particular New Year's Eve evening and how Alan and I would always go camping on New Year's Eve. That was our tradition. We would go and buy a paper fishing license from Walmart in Pennsylvania, get that awesome real deal painted trout stamp stuck on that thing, and then kind of kick off the new year with spring creek fishing. Because you can fish in spring creeks even in January in Pennsylvania because that water's a nice consistent temperature. There could be snow on the ground, there could be ice on your guides, but the trout are still ready to play game and even rise to midges. And so that's what we would do. So this is the beginning of a story about one particular New Year's evening with uh, some kind of sideways moments that are going to come about as I continue to tell the story over the coming weeks. This week's recommendation is actually going to be kind of like a, a broader version of the recommendation I made already of Fly Fisher's Guide to New England. So I have recommended before on the podcast and the website books from Wilderness Adventure Press. I am still a very big believer in a physical copy of something. I think I did an entire podcast on this, but just in brief, uh, if you don't have cell service, like you you will not in parts of Maine, uh, where I have not had cell service in parts of Massachusetts, Western Mass. I mean, it's Massachusetts for goodness sake, but I drop cell service. Uh, same thing in off the uh, Delaware. I mean, it, this is the the water supply for New York City, but I don't have cell service. But if I have a guidebook next to me in my passenger seat of my car, uh, in the hotel room, uh, at the campsite, I'm able to open it up and double check access points. I'm able to double check where I should be fishing from the few recommendations that are given there. I'm able to take a marker to it or a Sharpie to it, a highlighter to it, and make adjustments based upon what I'm seeing or what the fly shop has said to reflect up-to-date information. I will say that's the only downside about, about these books is that they are not updated automatically. But to be fair, um, with the exception of like uh, state fish and wildlife services, uh, like fly shops aren't always great at updating the information and blogs certainly aren't. I can say that from firsthand experience. But to have a book on hand is awesome. And Wilderness Adventure Press uh, fly fishing guidebooks are consistently good. Uh, there's other great ones out there, but uh, they have one for probably as many state, more states than any other publisher has. So I would recommend you check them out, go to their website. They always have like seconds on sale. So probably ones that are like bent and dense, and uh, you can always grab those. And they have digital versions also, which kind of defeats the purpose of what I was mentioning earlier. But if you want to just enjoy them from the comfort of your home, then you're able to grab the digital version for a little bit cheaper. And uh, I'm not utilizing one of those. So I'd be interested to see if there's any bells and whistles that come with getting the digital version of one of the guides from Wilderness Adventure Press. So I'll put a link to their website on the show notes to this podcast's page on castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, place, and things that go into the pursuit of fish.
life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.